Well, if you have your Bibles, turn to Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to look at the first five verses this morning. Ephesians chapter 5, and we'll begin in verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. We are continuing on in the application of the gospel in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. We're in the context of Paul telling us to live like who we really are. And we need to ask the question, how can we do it? You know, we used to wear bracelets that said, what would Jesus do? What would he do? But what if we ask the question, how did he do it? How did he love his enemies? Really, isn't that the most incredible thing Christ did? What would take the most power? How did he have the power of heart to love and die for his enemies? So that when they're crucifying Christ in Luke 23, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they mocked him. They raffled off his clothing. They doubted that he was really the son of God. They challenged him to prove it on the cross. And Christ is loving them. How how did Christ do it? In 1 Peter 2, 21, Peter says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. Well, what example? Here's what he says. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. How did he not revile? He was seeing the Father. He was trusting 
the Father. You remember at Jesus' baptism, Luke 3.22. We read that the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. Jesus heard from the Father, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. And then right after that, the Spirit drives Jesus into the wilderness where he fasts for 40 days and the devil comes to tempt him. And listen to the devil's temptation. Here it says, the devil said to him, if you are the Son of God. Jesus just heard God say, you are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. And the devil shows up and says, if you are the Son of God, command the stone to become bread. Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. Jesus is hungry. His flesh is saying, feed me. He was really hungry, and the devil basically comes and says, you know, if I were your father, I would let you eat right now. I, I would have you turn this stone into bread so that you could eat. The goodness of God, his father is being questioned but Jesus knows who he is. And so he says, man shall not live by bread alone. The devil takes him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment and said to him, to you I'll give this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me and I'll give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it'll be yours. Jesus said to him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. You see what the devil was doing there is once again, he's an alternative father. Jesus is on mission to suffer and inherit the kingdoms of the world, to go to the cross, to bear the sins of the world. And the devil says, I'll just give it to you. I would let you eat right now. And I would just give you the kingdom. But he didn't fall because he knew who he was. The whole world could be standing before Christ saying, you have a demon. You're not the true son of God. They could be crucifying him like they were. And how does Christ love them back? It's because the one being who matters more than every being in the universe has said, you're my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Jesus has no lack in his heart. 
He knows who he is as a beloved son of God. So as we look at our text, and the goal of this sermon, which is this charge, beloved children, be thankful as you walk in God's love. And the first thing we see in this text is essentially be like God. Therefore, be imitators of God. This is not a new concept for Paul. He taught us uh, the, the Ephesians already in, in chapter 4, verse 21. Uh, he says to the believers, he says, Assuming you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, and here's what he says, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. That is the new self. It's created after the likeness of God. So when he says, be imitators of God, he's repeating himself. And in the immediate context, whenever you see the word therefore, you need to read the verse before, which would be Ephesians 4.32, where he says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. So he says, love and forgive as Christ loved and forgave you, therefore be imitators of God. So there's the context of the charge to literally be mimics of God. That's the Greek word. The word, we get the word mimic from it. So be like God. Someone will say, okay, how do I do that? How do I love and forgive my enemies? How do I love and forgive my brothers and sisters in Christ and I think the second half of verse 1 is the key. He says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. See, that's a statement of identity. God said to Jesus, this is my beloved son. And Paul is saying, imitate God Forgive one another, have tender hearts, remembering who you are, beloved children. That's the power. You see, if your heart is lacking anything, because your mind has shifted from Christ which fills us up, Christ hasn't loved us with an insufficient love. 
He's loved us with the type of love so that our joy can be full. But as we don't walk according to who we are, which means our minds forget who we are, what our hearts begin to believe is that we're lacking and we seek to fill the lack with something other than Christ. And often it's the approval of other people. And the reason why we struggle to forgive one another is because if you treat me in such a way that hurts me, it makes me feel a lack inside and it, and it hurts to a degree that I need to punish you back. You see, I can't forgive you because I need to punish you so it won't happen again. To forgive like Christ forgave can only happen is if you see the fullness of God's love for you so that your heart is overflowing with the love of Christ so that when enemies come along, you have plenty of love to give them. Because now you don't need the people in your life to give you value or to give you your identity you're able to overflow with love for them. So when he says be imitators of God, he says as beloved children. So when you consider how to forgive like Christ forgave, you won't be able to do it as your eyes leave Christ. As he, in fact, when your eyes leave Christ, you start to believe that Christ is ripping you off. See, that's what happens. Rather than thanksgiving filling up our hearts, when our eyes leave Christ, we start to interpret the circumstances of our lives as victims rather than the reality that we are loved by God. That all things work together for the good of those who love Christ. And of course, we are his beloved children. Back in Ephesians 1, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons. And he goes on to say, as firstborn sons, those are who are going to receive a full inheritance. Last week, we look at 2 Peter 1, where Peter lists off these virtues, supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge, self-control, and self-control, steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted, he's blind. What happened? Having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. So as a Christian, you can be unfruitful 
in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, you can be ineffective and unfruitful as a believer when you have forgotten that you've been cleansed from former sins. You've forgotten that you are the beloved. Even John, as he writes his gospel, he refers uh, to himself as the one whom Jesus loved. You know, how how is John going to identify himself? Well, I think he goes to the core of what he believes. He identifies. We read that as Americans and we think, boy, that was arrogant. As though he loved John more than the other disciples. But the greatest reality in John's life is this. He loved me. He loved me. Who who are you? I am loved of Christ. That's how he viewed himself. And Jesus, in John 15, he says, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. So your salvation is meant to be fruitful. As the Father loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. Remember my love. Remember who you are. He says, Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love just as the Father, just as I have kept my Father's commandment and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. You see, if you abide in Christ's love, your joy will be full and you'll be able to love your enemies. You won't have to punish your enemies. You won't have to defeat your enemies, meaning human beings. We need to fight the spiritual battle against Satan and demons, yes. But you don't struggle against flesh and blood. Yes, you have people that might hate you, but you're to love them how Christ has loved you. And so, point two is we need to walk in the same self-sacrificial love of Christ. What does it mean to walk in his love? It's to remember who you are. It's to remember the gospel. And so, in verse two, he says, walk in this love. So, as beloved children, remembering who you are, walk in it. Let that be the engine of your life. As Christ loved us, so walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So we talked about this last week's psalm, but how did Christ love us? He loved us self-sacrificially. Which means you absolutely can love your enemies if you walk in that kind of love. Because your enemies are going to make you pay. It's going to be costly. It's going to be sacrificial. 
You see, to love one another, it's going to take your time. You can't love people that you're not around. It takes time and investment to love people. It costs you time. We're supposed to bear one another burdens, which means if I'm going to love you and you're going to love me, then we're going to carry a load in that love. It's going to cost in that if you're, you sin against me, my flesh wants to make you pay and then sin against you. But for me to absorb a wrongdoing and rather than return reviling for reviling, rather than cursing those who curse you, to bless, that's costly. But the question is, is can you do it? And then the next question is, is are you beloved of God? And then the next question is, is has the love of Christ been given to you, poured into your hearts? And it has been. And another good question is, is it God's will that I'm not around perfect people, but I have to learn to live with other sinners, and that's actually good for me, that all things work together for my good. And it's all these things that are important to remember as we are called to walk in love, and then that love is defined as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Agape love is self-giving love. It's unstoppable. Worldly love says, if you love me, I'll love you. How you treat me, I'll treat you. It's like a tennis match. One person might sin first, that's true. But then when one person curses and another curses back, now they've both been overcome with evil. That's, so the world gathers people around them that are easy and to love. And if you're not, I just push you out. I find new people to love. But agape loves unstoppable love. It can love even their enemies. And then he says, it might seem like a big change in thought here, but it's really not. He says, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. What is the contrast why, why sexual immorality, impurity, and covetousness now? If agape love is self-giving love, sexual immorality is always selfish. Impurity is always selfish and self-seeking. Covetousness comes from a heart that believes it is lacking. 
God hasn't been good to me. I deserve it. My flesh wants to use my body in sexual ways. I don't want to wait for marriage. It's not fair. I'm lacking. It's selfish. It's self-seeking. It's unloving to whoever is involved in the sexual immorality because sin always brings about death. It never produces life or joy. Pornography is wholly selfish. Every part of it is selfish. If you're struggling with pornography, you ought not just say, well, Christians don't do this, so don't do it. It's one of the rules. It's one of the bad things to do, and we want to do good things, so don't do the bad thing. That's not going to be that helpful. What you need to remember is, I am loved by Christ. God has not left any lack in my life. He has called me to walk in self-sacrificial love, and this would be taking time out of my day in my life that only I am going to get anything out of. And that very act is destructive. It's wholly selfish. Every aspect of it is all about only you. Now, the devastation is collateral. It harms all sorts of people. But the root problem is, it's a heart that believes God is not being good to me. And I deserve this sin right now. And so we justify it in our minds. But what you need to remember is, who are you? Who are you? Live like who you are, beloved children of God. Only the heart that is doubting the goodness of God and forgetting the love of God in Christ is able to feel sorry for oneself and therefore justify a self-centered act. Uh, you know, in Hebrews 12, we have an interesting text about Esau. We learned something new about Esau that we didn't know from the Old Testament. Hebrews 12, 14, it says, Strive for peace with everyone and for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And then he says, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Well, what, 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 what could bring that about? Here's what it is. That no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it, many become defiled. And then Esau is the example. He says, 
that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau. And someone might say, well, wait a minute. Esau sold his birthright for a bowl of soup, but why does it say he was sexually immoral and unholy? That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he had no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Esau was so given to his fleshly appetite and feeling so sorry for himself and doubting the goodness of God, he devalued God and God's blessing so much in his heart that he gave it away for a bowl of soup. He was so distant from seeing the goodness of God towards him that he would rather just satisfy his flesh in the moment than have the blessing of God. He gave such a special gift away. Don't do that with your sexuality. Don't do that. Sexual intimacy in marriage is one of the most valuable things. And so often people will give it away for a quick look at pornography. Just like bowl of soup. We, we treat the marriage bed as though it's nothing. The very next chapter in Hebrews 13, it says, let the marriage bed be held in honor among all. Let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. So one of the reasons the marriage bed should be held in honor is because it's such a gift of God. So when married couples are involved in sexual joking, maybe about even their own uh, sex life, the bed Others are brought in to the very place that is to be held in honor. One of the beauties of the marriage bed is there's two people here. And that's it. When it gets cheapened and it gets joked about and it gets spread, a, spread about, the very thing that is meant to be holy is shared. When a person uses their sexuality with pornography, the marriage bed becomes defiled. The very meaning of sexual intimacy is remember the covenant. And with sex outside of marriage, there is no covenant. So the very act of the thing that's being done that says, look at this. This is like a gift of God. It's like the ring that says, remember the covenant. That's what sexual intimacy is for the married couple. 
And when it's used outside of a covenant, it self-destructs. And we need to see ourselves as foolish as Esau. We need to value what God values and the gifts of God. Esau had a victim identity. This gets thrown in our face a lot nowadays. It's the water we're swimming in. That in his flesh, he was so deprived, it led to the justifying and giving away the blessing of God as the firstborn son. It was a victim mentality that led Esau to that place. A victim mentality will always lead you away from love. This is when we were walking into the Southern Baptist Convention in California uh, this last summer, uh, Bjorkman's uh, and, and Laura and I uh, were walking in, and some people came up and wanted to give us these pins that said, stand with the victims. You, you, you see, we, wanna, we want to identify a person's identity based on how they've been wronged. You know, put on these pins and let's validate the victimhood of, in this case, it was those who were sexually abused by pastors or those in the Southern Baptist higher-ups. And obviously, that's a terrible thing. The question, though, that we should ask in light of this, and this is important, so, so listen carefully here. People are really victimized. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. God stands with the afflicted. God stands with the widows and the orphans and the oppressed. God hates oppression. He hates when people sin against each other and wrong each other and abuse each other and take advantage of each other. However, those who have been victimized cannot let the wrong done against them define their life. It cannot be their identity without destroying their lives with bitterness. You see, the way victimhood rolls in our culture, the person looking at pornography is, is struggling with victimhood. It's unfair. I deserve this right now. I'm lacking. I'm going to justify my sin in light of how I've been wronged. The scriptures themselves are written to afflicted people. The scriptures are written to those who are suffering and abused. And Jesus said, they're going to abuse you worse than they abused me. And those whom the scriptures are written to are called to find their hope and joy in God, even in the midst of their trials and afflictions. That's what they're called to. They're not called to capitalize on how they've been wronged and make that 
the story of their life. Because all that will do is root up in bitterness. Now it's going to root up in a heart that begins to even doubt the goodness of God. In fact, like in Romans 8, 18, Paul says, For I consider the sufferings at the present time are not worthy comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. I mean, Paul could have complained from the very beginning. Because when God told Ananias to go give Paul his mission, you want to know what the mission was? Go tell Paul how much he must suffer for my namesake. From the very beginning, Paul could have said, this is a ripoff. What has God called me to? This is his plan for my life. But instead, Paul says, the sufferings of the present time aren't worthy comparing with the glory that's going to be revealed to us. And then he tells us that the Spirit intercedes in our weakness. He tells us all things work together for our good, to conform us in the image of Christ. And then in Romans 8, 31, he says, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who shall condemn? Christ is the one who died. More than that, who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. And then he says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, you're being killed all day long and we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Not from all those things, In all those things, we are more than conquerors. All the wrongs that could be done to us in this world, when you look at the gospel, when you look at Christ's love for you, even the greatest victim, and there's so many, can have hope in this world if they have the love of Christ. There's hope. Their whole life does not need to be defined by that. The root of sexual immorality is always rooted in a heart that believes they're being ripped off. And that's why he adds covetousness. You know, the 10th commandment prohibited coveting a neighbor's wife. At the heart of covenant is God hasn't been good to me. He hasn't given me what I needed, so I'm going to go elsewhere to get it, like my neighbor's wife. And so, Hebrews 13.5 says, keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have how am I supposed to be content? Here's what it says. For he has said, 
I will never leave you or forsake you. Be content. Don't be covetousness. Be content with what you have. Why? Because I won't ever leave you or forsake you. That's why. And it's until you're content, you can't love like Christ's love. You're going to have to go right to all the wrongs. You're going to have to punish. You're not going to be able to love your enemies. And so it's the contented heart that can walk in love. And then he says, let there be no filthiness nor foolish talk. So, so what Paul's doing is he's showing us the outward action like sexual immorality, impurity. And then he points us into the heart and he says that's because of a heart that's covetous. So he takes us from the outward sin inward and then he gives us really practical example here. He says, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. It's out of place because we're going to see in the rest of this text, it's reveling in the darkness. It comes not from a clever heart. So you're looking at a person that can sin in this way and, and often I would ask myself, now why did I say that? A clever thought came to mind. A sexual in, innuendo came to mind and then it came out of my mouth and then I asked myself, so why did that happen? Is it, I just, I mean, I'm just clever. I can't help it. Is, is, is that the reason? The reason is it's a heart that's lacking. It's a heart that needs the laughter or the approval of other people. But it's looking to get the approval of other people in an area that God absolutely hates. It represents who I was in Christ, not who I am in Christ. And so he says, let there be no filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking. You're not the standard. You don't get to say I'm a pretty good guy and I do it every now and then, so it's okay. God's word is the standard. He says, let there be none of it. No filthiness, no foolish talk, no crude joking, which are out of place. F.F. Bruce says, our tongues were made to bless the Lord. As Isaac Watts reminds us, and Christian tongues in particular have the unbound cause for engaging in the most worthy activity. Tongues which are habituated to praise God should not readily lend themselves to language which dishonors his name. So God's redeemed your heart, which means he's redeemed your tongue, which means when you use your tongue, use it to bless God. And he doesn't say, let there be no filthiness, foolish talk, crude joking, which are out of place, but rather speak pure things. It's not what the text says. That's what you would expect but he says, rather let something be. Look at what it says. 
but instead, let there be thanksgiving. Doesn't that seem odd? What's the, how is thanksgiving have anything to do with put away filthiness and crude joking? Do you see it? Instead of letting our mouths speak vile things that represent the old man, instead we ought to see the goodness of God. God's grace towards us in Christ so that we won't feel sorry for ourselves to the point where we're willing to sinfully use our mouths to get other people to like us or think we're funny. You see, the contented heart will never tell a filthy joke or will never have a struggle with foolish uh, using your mouth in a flippant way. Why? It doesn't need anything. It doesn't need the approval of the crowd. Let there be thanksgiving. And where there's thanksgiving, you're looking at Christ. And when you're looking at Christ, you're not going to speak filthiness from your mouth. And so the issue isn't don't talk dirty because you're a Christian. Those are, those are bad words that we're supposed to say nice words. The issue is, is you need to remember who you are and what God has done for you in Christ and then use your body and your mouth in ways that show that you're thankful to God for what he has rescued uh, you from. In verse 3 there, he says, it must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Sexual immorality, impurity. The idea here, not even named among you, it's not even to be in our thoughts. It's not just that you're not, we're not supposed to speak filthy or we're not just supposed to uh, commit sexual immorality. The idea is don't even let it be named. Don't even let it be in your mind. Don't give your mind over to those things. And then he goes on to say in verse 5, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of, of Christ and God. An idolater looks past God for more because they're not satisfied with God, right? And so he says, Who's get, who gets judged for this? Or, or, or what's the result of living like this? It's judgment. And then verse 6, he says, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon who? The sons of disobedience comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partakers with them. Why not? For at one time you were in darkness. You were. But now you are light <coughs> in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. Paul's saying the same thing. Don't talk like that because that's not who you are. That used to be you. 
You used to be children of darkness. You're not anymore. Walk like who you are. Who are you? You are loved. So how should you walk? Walk in love. The transition is this. Self-sacrificial love handles sexuality rightly. Selfish love turns to lust, doesn't it? The turning from love to sexual immorality is about lust. Lust is selfish. And Paul's simply saying, since you're beloved children, walk in love. 